This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Alford, trying to work himself free. Five down on a Daryl Thomas. Eight seconds to go. On the smart, make fine jumps on the air. Episode 55 of Play by Play Cast. Welcome back in. Thanks for clicking download or subscribe and joining us here again on a Friday morning. My name is Joel Godet. I'm a television and radio play by play broadcaster at Ball State University in uh, Muncie, Indiana, in the Mid American Conference. And that also means that I have a lot of free time this time of year. It's the summer of collegiate athletics, which means a lot of play by play cast takes up my time. As always, housekeeping notes off the top. You can find us on Twitter. We are at PXPCast. You can also find me at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. And then, of course, if you enjoy the product, uh, if you could throw some stars or a rating or review our way on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you do listen to your podcasts, uh, much appreciation. Uh, there were a couple people that threw some stars our way last week and uh, wrote some reviews. So thank you guys for taking the time to do that. On to our guest, though, today on episode number 55. And he's a guy that uh, I probably should have had on a lot longer ago just because of our geographic proximity to each other. Uh, but then again, we didn't do this in person. We did it on the phone. Uh, so so I guess 55 is, a, is a, a good round number to have the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers Don Fisher on the podcast. Summer's actually a really busy time for Don, uh, which is why we ended up doing this on the phone. Um, We actually saw each other about a week after we recorded this episode. I mentioned at the end of the podcast last week, we both played in the same celebrity golf outing a couple of weeks ago, which is weird to me. Uh, But when you're a guy like Don Fisher in the state of Indiana, that's the kind of stuff you do in the summer. There are a lot of demands on Don's time, so uh, super gracious that he took the time to to spend 45 minutes with us on the phone. By the way, I sincerely apologize to the group that got stuck with me in that celebrity golf outing, <laughs> because you could have had, if, if you sign up, and you're giving a donation to charity to play in a celebrity golf outing, you could have had, in your group of four, plus a celebrity, uh, Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, Chris Denary played. He's the television voice of the Indiana Pacers. You could have had uh, Mark Minner. He's the voice of the Butler Bulldogs. You could have had Bob Kravitz, who writes uh, in Indianapolis originally for the Star, and he's now on TV. Uh, But Bob was very much at the center of Deflategate. You could have had him in your group. You could have had former Indianapolis Colts offensive lineman Joe Wrights. He was a potential celebrity. Several former Indiana or Purdue basketball players from like the 60s, 70s, 80s. You could have had any of those guys, or you could have had me. And to top it all off, I'm not a great golfer. 
Like, I hit two drives the whole day. I don't think we used either of them. I'm useless in the fairway. I'm pretty good out of the rough. Uh, and I can putt. I did hit three putts. I hit three putts, which I think in a scramble is a good thing. So, but anyway, I, it's just, it's very weird to play in a celebrity golf outing, let alone when you could have had Don Fisher in your group. Uh, but that said, he is a guest on this week's podcast, and he is one of the longest tenured voices in collegiate athletics. We've had a couple of them on this podcast already, uh, going back to Rich Chivotkin, the voice in Georgetown. We had Johnny Holiday on, who's been at Maryland since the late 70s. Bill Hillgrove has been at Pittsburgh since the mid-70s. Uh, Gene Deckerhoff comes to mind. He's not been on the podcast, but uh, he's been late 70s at Florida State. Uh, Joe Starkey's been at Cal for a while, uh, 1975, 1975 he's been at Cal since. So, uh, super excited to get to talk to Don and kind of pick his brain about the, the industry and the business because he gives us a different perspective, certainly um, from his years in the industry, but also his experiences coming up are far different than those that younger people in particular are familiar with today. Don has been the voice at IU, again, since 1974, more than 40 years. So he's gotten a chance to call the last perfect college basketball team, uh, called three of the five national championship teams for Indiana in terms of basketball. Uh, worked a long time with Bob Knight, was there through the entire rebuild. He was there for Watford against Kentucky, obviously. He's been there through a lot of not great football, and I can say that because I grew up an IU fan, uh, and he's been there recently through some pretty good football uh, or some pretty decent football as well. He's been on the call for a couple of Ball State wins over Indiana and uh, has has been on the call for a couple of bowl games recently as well, and Antoine Randall-L, who was uh, like my childhood college football hero. So a lot of interesting perspectives with Don, and we'll get to a lot of that, but where we start with Don is a story that is so fantastic on face value because it's one of those things that I feel like should be a unique story. And yet in a lot of different ways works its way into the history of a lot of broadcasters. And that is a little white lie to start your career. Don, when he first got into broadcasting, and I don't want to spoil the story. He will, he will tell it far better than I uh, was asked if he could do play by play. And the answer was Yes. Now, the actual answer was no, but the answer that he gave was yes, and that is how he wound up getting his foot in the door as a play-by-play broadcaster uh, when he first got into this industry. Now, it's a story that really you you would think should be unique, uh, but Bob Costas will tell you the story of when he toyed with his first demo uh, or or called a hockey game where he decided the one guy on the ice was going to be Wayne Gretzky that night, and he was ever, Smith was everywhere. Uh, you, you have stories about that all the time. I remember I, when I went to the Iron Eagle Bruce Beck sports broadcasting camp in high school. I don't remember if it was Iron or Bruce. Um, Iron Eagle, of course, CBS, Bruce Beck of, of NBC4 in New York that was talking about broadcasting skiing earlier in their career and, and just he's skiing backwards and just kind of going with the flow. I think Ian did boxing once and didn't know boxing from Adam really before he started to get into that. Uh, it's you say yes. When some, when somebody, when somebody asks, Hey, I got you. Uh, and that's how Don Fisher's career started. And, uh, very quickly, uh, he realized that he needed to 
uh, hone the craft a little bit, and he will tell that story here at the beginning of Play-By-Play Cast. It's a fun 45-minute journey with the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, Don Fisher. Well, once I decided that sportscasting is what I wanted to get into, I, I was in full go, and uh, even though I uh, went a different route than most people, because uh, I went with a home correspondence course out of Career Academy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a company that no longer exists. But uh, nevertheless, that's how I got started. And I just felt like and this is something I really want to do. I'd always been involved in sports as an athlete, not a great athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but I love sports and, and got involved in it at a fairly young age and, and played, you know, essentially everything, football, basketball, baseball-wise. Uh, growing up and, you know, got out of high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. Finally ended up working for the railroad and uh, having gone seven months with uh, without a day off to start out the, the railroad job, uh, primarily because they told me when they were I was hired that I would have uh, uh, weekends off once they hired uh, a guy to take weekends, <laughs> take on weekends. And it took him a while to get that done, including seven months' worth. I literally had one day off in a seven-month period of time. Well, having done that through about the first three or four months, I said, I'm not going to be in, in uh, the railroad business very long either. <laughs> and I was sitting at the depot one night uh, in, in the office. Uh, my shift was nine at night till six in the morning. I decided right then and there, having uh, looked at a sport magazine that night that had an ad on the back page that said, how would you like to be a sportscaster? And it was from Career Academy, and I said, that's what I want to do. And from that point on, I just had, I had that ambition to do it, uh, to whatever it took to do it. And, uh, of course, you got to get into radio first. Uh, generally speaking, you don't get into it as a play-by-play guy. You get into it as a disc jockey or an announcer of some kind or a salesman or whatever else uh, there is, newscasting and that kind of thing. And I went to Butte, Montana and got my first job in uh, 1967. Um, Butte, Montana had a radio television station out there and they were looking for a guy that would work at nine o'clock at night till six in the morning, which was exactly the, uh, <laughs> the same shift that I was currently working <laughs> at the railroad. Uh, nevertheless, I had to go interview for the job. I did. So, uh, they obviously would have hired anybody that could basically walk, chew gum and maybe write their name at the same time. <laughs> uh, because I, I don't think there were getting many takers on the nine o'clock at night till six in the morning shift, which included a three hour stint as the janitor. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So at any rate, uh, that's how I got my first job. I was out there for about a year and a half. I came back to Illinois where I was from. Uh, went back to work, believe it or not, for the railroad for a short period of time, <laughs> knowing full well that I wasn't going to be a full-time guy for very long. And I was starting to look for a sportscasting job. And I went to Ottawa, Illinois, um, based on an ad I saw in Broadcast Magazine at the time, and applied for the job there. And they, they wanted to interview me, so I came down from Mendota, which was 30 miles away from where I was living. Uh, to Ottawa, and uh, lo and behold, the guy basically was going to hire me uh, without any more than a year and a half's experience. The one thing that he did say was, how much play-by-play have you done? Well, I figured, I I told him none. There was no chance I was going to get the job because play-by-play was a part of that uh, particular position. And uh, basically I said, well, I did the backup games in Butte, Montana. <laughs> he said, well, do you have a tape? And I said, 
no, they didn't save those tapes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy didn't know a thing about sports, and I don't think he really cared. He was looking for pretty much to fill the same kind of position as the one in Butte, Montana, based on the fact that I was going to do everything else at the radio station besides sports. So literally got the job in July, did my first game in 1st of September of uh, 1968. And uh, believe it or not, I was the worst play-by-play man they ever heard. Um, literally had no clue what I was doing. It could and have been finally, that bad. I, it, well, I mean, like, was, that? It, was it that bad? It was terrible. I can honestly tell you, because I had never done a game before except for one time I sat in the stands of a high school basketball game with my tape recorder that I was supplied with from Career Academy and tried to do the play-by-play. I was sitting up the top of the stands. There was nobody up there near me. That's uh, primarily why I sat there, because I didn't want anybody (laughs) to hear how bad that might be. And I just kind of went through the process, and I still thought that, hey, I can do this. It's not that big a deal. I've just got to get a little experience and do a few more games. Well, obviously, I had no chance to do any other games until I did that very first one. And I went back to the radio station that night uh, very sheepishly, knowing the station signed off at 10 o'clock in the evening. And in, in those days, that's what stations did, especially if they weren't 24 hours and didn't have the personnel to staff it for 24 hours. So at any rate, I went back at about 11 o'clock that night to take the equipment back to the station. The manager was standing in the doorway, silhouetted against the light in the doorway and smoking his pipe. And it looked like he was billowing smoke out of that pipe. He was not a happy camper. It's like a movie. Exactly. So literally, I walked into the station and I never got hello out of my mouth. He said, I thought you told me you'd done play by play before. And I said, well, Mr. Porso, if I would have told you that, I didn't think that you would have hired me. And he said, no, and blank, 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 blank. (laughs) Uh, He said, you've got three weeks. If in three weeks you're not better, you're done. So I got up the next morning. I called up a guy named Art Kimball. Never met him before, but he was a really good play-by-play man on the South Peru, which is 15 miles down the road. I told him my predicament. I said, I really need some help, somebody to, to give me some direction on what I should be doing here, how I should prepare, that kind of thing. He said, come over tomorrow, and uh, it was Sunday, and he said, come over Sunday, and, and I'll spend some time. We'll talk. So I got to his place about noon, and he spent five hours with me. Literally just sat down, went through everything that he did from a football, basketball, baseball standpoint uh, for the high school level, how he prepared, how he interviewed, who he talked to, um, how he kept stats, all those kinds of things. And the five, the five hours worth of stuff that I took down note-wise is what I've been using for the last 40, what, 49 years or whatever it's been. So, uh, really, that guy helped me dramatically. And in three weeks, I still had a job. And one year after I got through, uh, I went back just recently and listened to my very first game. <laughs> and, I went, and then I went back and listened to the very last game I did in that first year. And the, and the difference was unbelievable. Um, and I, I'm not bragging about it. I'm just simply saying I learned so much from him and based on what he was able to do for me in the sense of getting me prepared or how to prepare and getting me to think the right things and how to go about it, um, it was pretty dramatic. So at any rate, uh, you know, five about four and a half years after that, I became the play-by-play man for IU, and they've never been able to get rid of me. So tell me about those uh, those couple of years there where you're you're figuring it out and getting better. And I guess even in particular that first year, 
what are you doing on the job and, and kind of what was your process like to, to go from zero to 100 and, and get to the point where you're comfortable doing this? Well, the one thing Mr. Kimball told me that I really needed to pay attention to, and he told me that I should do this religiously, he said, somehow, some way, you've got to tape every game that you do. And then you've got to go back and you've got to listen to that tape and you've got to be your own worst critic. He said, you, nobody's going to be able to tell you what sounds good. You're going to have to know that yourself. You're going to have to be able to pick out what you think is really good and what you don't think is very good. You're going to have to kick out the bad stuff and, and partake of the good stuff and continue to do it. And, and honestly, uh, that is the one thing I did. I, I literally taped every game, uh, had the station tape it for me because they had an old Wallensack tape recorder. People who don't know anything about how you were taping games in the old days, reel to reel and stuff. Don't even know what a Wallensack <laughs> is, but it's, it's a, just a cheap tape recorder that, that tapes reel to reel tapes and, uh, at seven and a half speed. And basically I, I had them tape every game. And I would listen to every one of those games, and I would critique it. And I was, I was my own worst critic. I really was. Uh, I, I still, to this day, don't like a lot of stuff that I do on the air. Uh, I go back and listen to it. And I go, "What are you doing?" You know that kind of thing. So uh, that's just the formula that I've used throughout the years. Um, obviously, I wrote down a lot of things that Mr. Kimball told me, and I've looked at those notes pretty religiously through the years. Um, I, I haven't done so necessarily much the last 10 or 15, just because I've been in this business so long that, that, uh, at this juncture, there's not much I can change to get much better than I am. But at the same time, I still critique my tapes. I still go back and listen to them, see if I've gotten in some kind of a rut with a word or those kinds of things. And believe me, I get into those ruts and probably the worst word in the English language for me not to say is obviously, I, I say obviously, way, way too much. It's, it's one of those things, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. Every time I hear myself say it, I cringe and want to slap myself. <laughs> so it's just a process. It really is. And the more play-by-play -play that you do, and Joel, this is the good fortune that I've had. I was able to do football, basketball, and baseball games in Ottawa for two and a half years. In a three-month stint in Springfield, didn't produce any sports, but I went to Terre Haute from there. And I was there for two and a half years, and I did 175 broadcasts a year, play-by-play -play broadcasts a year in Terre Haute at WBOW Radio. And I'm telling you, it was the greatest experience of my life because it gave me all the opportunity, play-by-play-wise, that I could ever possibly ask for. And it really, it boiled down to I got better quickly just because I did so much play-by-play. -play. I, I knew what I had to do, and I went back and listened to tapes, and it was, it was a constant thing. And for that two-and-a-half-year period is one of the reasons I became the play-by-play -play guy I'm, that I am today. Do you remember, are there are a couple of things that stand out um, as things that when you listened back in those early years frustrated you the most or you notated the most as saying, this is where I've got to get better and where you felt like you made strides to, to like you said, become the play-by-play -play guy that you are? Well, I think the the one thing that dro always drove me crazy is, uh, you know, I've always I always liked the excitement part of the play by play. I always thought Harry Carey was one of the great uh, play by play guys in, in our business when I was growing up. He was the Cardinals announcer, and and I loved listening to that guy because he always brought an excitement to the broadcast. And so I tried to incorporate that into my play by play. 
not necessarily in the same way, although for a long time I could not understand why I couldn't sound like Harry to some degree from an excitement standpoint. Well, my problem was is that I got way overboard with it. I mean, literally started screaming, um, and, and, it, and it became a real problem for me initially uh, because if something exciting happened, I just didn't let it flow. You know, there's an inflection you can use to make the game sound exciting, without actually screaming, you know, and, and, and over-modulating microphones and those kinds of things. <laughs> and, and I really had a problem with that in the early days, and, and I still do to some degree. Uh, you can get over-exuberant sometimes with, with trying to make something sound exciting because it is. And so I've really fought that my whole career. It's been one of those things that, that I've gotten much better at as the years have gone by, but at times I just get too carried away with the level that you're supposed to have out there. You, there's a way to do it and make it exciting without going overboard. And I listened to a guy named Dan Kelly, who was the St. Louis Blues announcer on KMOX Radio for years and years, one of the greatest play-by-play guys I've ever heard at knowing how to use his voice and inflection to make something sound exciting. And, and I listened to him religiously a lot when I was growing up in this business uh, back in the Illinois days. And uh, I just thought he was tremendous. And his listening to him and how he went about it and that kind of thing. Um, and believe me, Joel, there's nobody in this business that knows better than I that you steal from everybody that you listen to. If, if the guy's good, you want to you emulate that in some degree. And I stole a lot from Dan Kelly, no question. Did you ever do voice kind of lessons or I mean, what was your evaluation of your voice in terms of learning inflection? And I mean, was it a lot of self-taught listening to those guys or... Uh, what was your approach in terms of learning how to control the instrument? I, I never had a, a voice lesson in my life. Uh, I, I, never, I, I never really thought about that, to be quite honest. And I never really liked my voice very much. Even today, I still don't think that my voice is all that great. Um, I, it's just, you know, it's a personal thing. It's, it's one of those things where uh, I wish I had somebody else's voice. I wish I had the, the smoothness of Ben Scully <laughs> I wish I had the inflection of Dan Kelly. I wish I had the excitement of Harry. Uh, I, I still, I, I still lament that I'm not quite what I would like to be as a broadcaster, and yet I still strive to be the best that I can each time I go on the air. Uh, so I think that's a big part of of why you can be somewhat successful, uh, like I have been, in the sense of doing, trying to do the right things and trying to make the right moves and the right sounds and the right inflections and those kinds of things. Play-by-play, I think, is an art form. Um, I, I don't think I'm, by any stretch of the imagination, a very great, a good artist from it comes to a play-by-play standpoint, but I have always been able to take what I thought was pretty good and utilize it and been fortunate enough to, to find out that it actually wasn't too bad. I was going to say, you have several thousand people in Indiana that would would disagree with you there and, and think you, you do quite all right for yourself. Uh, um, what? Tell me about getting the IU job. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to make you sound old, but like, what? When you got the IU job, what did it mean to be the voice of Indiana basketball forty-four years ago? Well, I knew it was a big-time job in, in the sense that that it was Indiana was a very hot commodity when I got there in 1973. Bob Knight had taken the team to the Final Four the year before I got there, or the spring before I got there in the summer. 
Um, and, and so I knew that Indiana was big. I come from Illinois. So I had, I, I knew a little bit about Indiana and, and followed Indiana a little bit, even though I was a university of Illinois fan growing up and, and, and really followed Illinois closer than I did anybody else. But, but at the same time, um, I knew that Indiana was a big time job, at least from a basketball standpoint. And I knew that the state was rabid basketball, uh, as far as the fan base was concerned. And so I knew it was a really important job. I, I never anticipated that I would have been here as long as I have been, because as you know, in our business, uh, you move around and you move around to try to get a better job or a better salary or a better position, whatever the case may be. Um, and I had, I had moved from Butte, Montana to Ottawa, Illinois, to Springfield for a very short three month period to Terre Haute, Indiana for two and a half years. And then back to Ottawa, believe it or not, I literally left Terre Haute in the fall of 1972 um, because the station had been sold and they changed the format on the FM side. We had done all our play-by-play on the FM side because the uh, the station simulcast the rest of the day. AM and FM were the same programming except for play-by-play. And so they allowed me to do all the play-by-play in the FM. Well, the new guy came in. He said, look, at the end of the football season – we're dropping sports on the FM side. We're making intensive form uh, music format, and therefore uh, we will no longer need uh, your services in a play-by-play standpoint. We 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 don't mind if you want to stay around and and be a DJ or something like that. <laughs> I said that ain't happening That's if I can hit. help it. And so, of course, uh, there's no job to be had. You know as well as you know, uh, you're not looking for a job in November uh, at the end of a football <laughs> season. Uh, and going to find one. There's just nobody that's leaving that job unless somebody dies or they get deathly ill or something like that happens, and that certainly wasn't the case for me. So as soon as this, uh, as soon as I heard from Mr. Newhoff that this was going to be the plan for WBOW, I started looking around, and I called the old general manager. Now He was the program director when I was there the first time, but the general manager now was a guy that was the PD before. His name was Jim Frandon, and I just called him up just to see if he had heard of Maybe there was anything up there that maybe something was going to happen positively. And, and he told me, he said, look, he said, we are using a high school kid to do our play-by-play right now. He's not bad. He's got a pretty good voice. He said, but the big problem is he doesn't have any experience, and he's still very much learning in a learning mode. He said, how about you come back here and, and work for us again and, and help this kid out? because you're not going to sit here. You're not going to stay in Ottawa very long, I would assume. And I said, that's exactly right. I'm going to look for other jobs as soon as spring comes. (laughs) So believe it or not, I was so fortunate that Jim hired me back. Uh, I sold for them and did play by play and helped a kid named Joel Colburn, who I don't know. He he got it, must've gotten out of radio because I've never heard from him since. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I did an awful job, but Whatever the case, uh, I worked there for that eight-month period, and during that eight-month period, when spring came around, I started looking for other jobs. And I I hunted several positions in the state of Illinois, including uh, Southern Illinois, a couple of high school jobs, one in Marion, Illinois, and um, trying to think of the other one. I also applied for a job in Eugene, Oregon, at KUGN, be the play-by-play voice of the uh, Oregon Ducks. Well... All of a sudden, I get a phone call one day from my old boss in Terre Haute. His name was Harvey Glore. Uh, Newhoff had bought the station, and Harvey stayed on as their general manager. 
And he called me up and he said, hey, did you apply for the IU job? And I said, the Indiana University job? And he goes, yeah. I said, I didn't even know the job was open. He says, oh, they've been, he says, they've been advertising it for about two months now. <laughs> I said, oh, you got to be kidding me. He said, let me tell you, uh, I don't know much about it. He says, I, all I do know is that I thought of you as soon as I saw that the job was open. I figured you'd applied. But, uh, you know, I hadn't heard anything. And I thought maybe you'd have us on a resume and that kind of thing. And I said, of course. Uh, I said I would done, I'd done that in a heartbeat. So at any rate, I said, well, what do you know about it? And he says, I know the general manager's name is Don Nelson. I've met him once before. I'll call him and just see if they're taking any uh, other applicants because this job, like I said, has been open for about two months, and, yeah. and we haven't heard anything as to who's gotten it. So Harvey calls me back about an hour later, and he goes, look, they'll t- still take a tape and a resume, but there's 275 other guys that have applied for the job. <laughs> And I went, oh, you got to be kidding me. I said, I got no chance. He says, just send him a tape and a resume. I did. Believe it or not, a week and a half later, I was called and said, we'd like to interview you for this position. I was one of five guys that they interviewed. I went down, did the interview, uh, thought I'd probably have no chance at all, got back home, and two weeks later, I was the man. So I have no idea how I got it. All I can tell you is that I think they were absolutely tired of listening to tapes and resume. <laughs> and the last guy that they heard was me, and they said, hey, he's about like the rest of them. We'll hire him. <laughs> the timing's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, how, are, how are you still there 44 years later? And I guess now it makes sense, but like 20 years in or, or 15 years in, what was your thought process? And like, when did it become... I'm never leaving kind of a deal, and, and this is home, and I'm happy here. Um, particularly, like you said, because you're not originally from here. Um, right. When did you decide, hey, this is home? 1987, it became home. Um, uh, to that point in time, I'd had quite a bit of success um, and won a number of awards, that kind of thing. Had been there long enough that knew that that was really the place that that I could hang my hat if I wanted to for the rest of my career, if in fact, um, you know, nothing else came along. Well, believe it or not, 1987, it did. The Indiana Pacers came calling and, um, I was contacted by Donnie Walsh, my wife, who I just married a year before that, um, had, and, and this was my second marriage, but, um, at any rate, my wife was working for the Pacers and she was Donnie Walsh's assistant. And Donnie told her that he would like to hire me to become the voice of the Indiana Pacers. And so we had several conversations. Um, I, I had divorced a few years before that. Um, the day that I got married about a week after I got married, I had custody of my sons. I had three boys or four boys, three of which were still living at home. And, um, Donnie Walsh calls me and he goes, we'd like you to become the voice of the Pacers. So we sat down on two different occasions. I told him what my concerns were uh, because I was really bothered by the fact that if I became the voice of the Pacers, I was going to probably leave my new wife in charge of three older boys. And it was not going to be pretty, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it was It was one of those situations where, you know, I mean, Sure, my wife was willing to take this on, but at the same time, uh, the boys were at an age where they were going to be tough to handle if, if I wasn't there to be all over them and, and to make sure that they were doing the right things. And I didn't want to put her in a position where she looked like the bad guy all the time. 
And so uh, basically, I, I basically told the Pacers, no, I've got I've to stay in Indiana. Uh, I, this job doesn't require me to travel like the Pacer job would. Um, it's not as long a season, even though I'm doing work for both the radio station and with IU. Uh, my job doesn't take me out of town all the time, and I, I can spend a lot more time at my home and that kind of thing. And so I turned down the Indiana Pacer job. Uh, I had had two or three other offers to go elsewhere. I was talking. I was talked to by uh, the Minnesota Twins at one point. I was talked to uh, by the Cleveland Cavaliers at one point. Um, I was talked to by. I'm trying to remember the other one. There was another really good job that was up, and I was talked to about. But none of those came to fruition, just be, for the, basically the same reasons I'm telling you now. It more was involving family matters and situations like that. And so, 1987, it became. Uh, the job that I've been able to hang on to for 44 years now. What makes it special in that regard? And obviously it's Indiana, and obviously it's Indiana basketball, um, and I mean that lowercase basketball. Um, but uh, what what makes being the voice of a place like that for so long special to you? Well, I think the thing, Joel, that that – that makes me happiest is all of the relationships I've been able to develop over the years. Um, all the former players that come back, we, there's a reunion June 10th this year. We, they, this will be the third or fourth year that they've had this reunion for the basketball team now. Um, and you get to see all these kids that you did games for. Um, so many of them have become friends. Um, all the, all the former, uh, athletes, uh, or athletic directors and former coaches, uh, all those relationships that you build through the years, um, it, it's become a special place for those reasons, uh, as well as, as obviously the success as a play by play man. So, uh, it's just, it's just, and of course, Indiana is a, a tremendous, tremendous job. The IU job is terrific because you get to do both football and basketball, not just one or the other. Um, you get to do both. Um, I do shows daily, of course, and I've, I've had a chance to, to meet so many great people through my years. I've actually done games where we've had at least two, a dad and a son, that have played for their respective same teams that we were broadcasting for, Marion Barber being one of those. In fact, I think I went through three Barbers. I think all three <laughs> played at Marion. At, uh, at Mar- one was the granddad, one was the dad, and one was the, the son. So, <laughs> It's been kind of an interesting scenario in that regard, but Indiana has become a special place to me, uh, primarily because of the relationships that I've been able to develop. But of course, I've always had tremendous guys to work with. Uh, all the guys that have done color for me and and uh, have worked with me in the booth, uh, spotters and guys like Joe Smith, who's been with me for thirty plus years now. Uh, Max Gervin, of course, was my first color guy who did both football and basketball for twenty four years. And the guys that I work with now, Buck Sewer and Eric Sewer, I think maybe the only father-son combination of color competitors yeah. in football and basketball in the country. Uh, relationship-wise, I do want to ask you about one in particular, too, um, and that's having worked in your career for so long with Bob Knight. Um, and I've interviewed him once, and it took me three questions, and granted, I was in college, so I wasn't very good or smart at this point in time. Um, but it took me three questions to get called a media type. Um, so <laughs> what, what was it like, uh, and, and how did, what does it draw out of you to, to work with a guy like that and kind of know that, um, you know, you've got to be on point and your questions have to be good 
and uh, you've got to you've got to come to the table set and ready. Uh, I would imagine with a guy like that when you're working with him. Well, here's what I learned the very very first day of basketball season in 1973. I knew it before going in because my general manager had said, "Look, you're going to be interviewing um, Bob Knight for your pregame show every game." And he's not going to be the easiest guy to interview. His reputation precedes him. He, he is going to be difficult to deal with. Your responsibility is to deal with it, whatever it turns out to be, and to get that interview for every ball game. And I expect you to do it. So I went, to, I went there basically with my left arm tied behind my back and my right arm saying, I don't know if I can do this. And it turned out that um, Coach Knight was not easy. He was very intimidating. Um, but my job was to get the interview. And I was going to get it come heck or high water. And I was able to do that for 27 years. Uh, I enjoyed working with him to some degree. But it was always, um, I, I don't want to say uh, that it was always difficult. But it was all, you never knew what you were going to get. Um, you never knew if he was going to be in the kind of mood that he would answer questions, uh, seriously, or if he was going to be flippant, or if he was going to be, uh, try to be funny, uh, which he often did if he had people around that were watching him do the interview. And he had uh, lots of friends that came in, uh, and sat down while we were doing the interview, that kind of thing. And of course he always thought he had to entertain his friends, so I was the butt of jokes many times, and obviously he would use some very profane language that would force us to start the show over again. <laughs> it, it, was, it was very difficult at times. And then at other times it was just delightful because he was such a smart man, and he is such a smart man, always has been, had a photographic memory, one of the great preparers of game uh, situations for his players that I've ever seen. This guy was phenomenal at tearing down film on the opponent and being able to break down each player and know what his strengths and weaknesses were and tell his kids what they had to do to play against this guy. It's one of the reasons Knight was so successful. So to be around somebody that was so good at what he did and so really smart about how he went about it um, it was really interesting and, uh, probably, I don't know how to describe it exactly other than to say he was an eccentric in his own way and being around an eccentric teaches you a lot about yourself and about a lot of other people as well. What do you, uh, do you remember what you said when he threw the chair? I, I basically do. I basically said, I don't believe what I just saw. I think I, it wasn't a jackpot copycat deal, but it might as well have been because, um, and, and basically for the first, for the first two or three seconds or the first couple of seconds after he did it, I don't think I said anything because it was, it was stunning. Cause you, you know, didn't you believe just what you just saw. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he just basically picks up the chair. He walks over. He's just, he's, I can't remember who he, if he talked to, the official, or if he just was looking at the official talking to, to, um, Fred Jaspers was the guy who had given him the technicals that day. And Jaspers, I think was over talking to Ralph Floyd. Ralph Floyd always sat 
at the top of the benches at the one end of the assembly hall. And, and when I say the top of the bench, the bench seating there, which is right up against that wall, not yeah. up in the stands, but that bench seating, you know, yep. he sat there right by that aisleway at the end of the court and Jasper's went right over to him and they were talking and Bob was just livid because I think Jasper's had told him you're out of the ball game and, and Bob wasn't leaving. And while they stood, while they were stood there talking, Bob picks up the chair and he throws it. And I knew he knew that, that was going to get him not of the ball game. He, he couldn't <laughs> stay there. Or they're going to have to walk off like they did the Russian game a few years later. <laughs> but but literally, when he threw it, he, he, you were just stunned by it. And then, of course, you know, uh, he gets kicked out of the game, and, and the game goes on. But it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen happen in a basketball game. And again, I already mentioned it, but the Russian game when they were having the exhibition game. Uh, back in the late eighties, um, <laughs> and he didn't like what was going on with his team, nor did he like a couple of calls and they were just getting drilled by the Russians. It was the only exhibition game they ever played against the Russians. <laughs> I think that they lost, but he was so mad at his team and he was so mad at the officials in that ball game. He just basically waved his team off and they went to the locker room and they never came back out. That's like straight out of semi-pro. It's <laughs> 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 fantastic. Um, I have two more questions for you in particular, uh, if that's okay. Um, and one of them was from something that was in the Indie Star that did a profile of you. And I don't remember when, if it was this, if it was recently or if it was the one a couple of years ago. Um, but it mentioned that, uh, and, and maybe it's hyperbole, but it mentioned that, uh, you used to be so nervous that you didn't or couldn't eat before a broadcast or a game. Uh, is that true? Yes. Yes. That, that literally was true for about the first, oh, I can't tell you how long, maybe the first eight or nine, ten years. I, I used to be really nervous. I, I mean, and I still can be nervous, but and generally now it takes the form of, uh, of me standing in front of an audience to get me to feel like that. I don't like standing in front of people and talking. Um, I, I've had a phobia about it since I was in high school. I didn't like speech class at all. That's why it's so, so much of an anomaly that I even got into this business, but <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, behind a microphone is not the same as standing there with a bunch of people looking at you, you know. And yeah. television, doing the Colts games for the last 22 years has really helped me with this as well, is getting up and standing up there and talking while people are looking at you. And, and I don't have the phobia that I used to have, although I still don't like doing speaking engagements other than MC work because I don't like, I don't feel like I'm much of an entertainer. And therefore, uh, that's what people expect when you get up in front of an audience and start talking and doing speeches and things like that. They want to be entertained as well as informed. And I just never felt very good about telling a lot of jokes or things like that. My biggest problem is I can't remember jokes. So, <laughs> <I'm right there laughs> with you. at any rate, um, so at any rate, uh, th- that's a big issue in, in, in that sense. And and but. I did get nervous. I, 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 I never wanted to eat before a ball game. Not, not because I thought it would make me sick. I just wasn't hungry. <laughs> I just couldn't get hungry. And even if I had breakfast that morning and we had a game that night, uh, I better eat something at lunch or I was not going to have anything because I knew, you know, two or three hours before game time, I was done. I was not going to be able to eat anything. And I just did not. And I, you, I used to go over to kick Klingelhofer uh, used to invite me over to his house. He was the sports information director at Indiana for years, either the assistant or the head. And uh, and I used to go over to his house. And finally, uh, Gala, his wife, 
uh, always made me um, would make me dinner, and I I wouldn't eat it. And finally, one night, I started eating it, and I didn't even recognize that I was eating it. And she goes, "You're eating dinner tonight," <laughs> and I said. Yeah, I am. Maybe I'm not nervous anymore. <laughs> At any rate, uh, that's kind of that. That was the first that I noticed that I really wasn't nervous and I didn't have uh, have a problem eating anymore. So that might have been ten, twelve years after I got started with IU. How'd you learn to manage just nerves and kind of approach? And I mean, I, I we all kind of I, I imagine you know you get to a bigger game and I mean you get revved up like players get revved up too. And and being yeah. able to to get yourself in the right mindset because at the end of the day it's a performance. Um, and be able to to perform and and have a clear mind and kind of know where your thoughts are. Exactly. I mean, it, it is a performance. It, it's it it is entertainment, I guess. But it's you know it's play by play. Play by play is is trying to describe something for somebody's mind. Uh, at least radio play by play is. And I've always felt like that that is what. I really wanted to do. I always, I remember growing up listening to all the announcers, uh, as I stated, Harry Carey and Dan Kelly and a guy named Gene Elston who did the Cubs way back when. And, and, um, I can't remember the white Sox guy's name, but he was Bob Elson was his name. He, He was the guy that I grew up listening to during the white Sox games. And I listened to a lot of different play by play people. I listened to Notre Dame games, um, um, on radio a lot because Notre Dame was the uh, college that you could hear any any Saturday, almost any place in the country because they had a national radio uh, network and and they were on a lot of stations and I listened to them on WLS out of Chicago. Um, at any rate, in 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 those situations, in being able to listen to those guys um, and and kind of growing up with it. You knew that they were performing, but it wasn't the same kind of performance as somebody up singing or dancing or those kinds of things. Uh, and I could go into a long story about that, too, based on the fact that my mom wanted to be a stage mom. And by the time I was eight <laughs> until I was about 12, I did a lot of stuff that I wish I would have never been able to do. or never. Not that I wished I wouldn't have been able to do it. I just wish that at the time that I wouldn't have done it because it, it brought a lot of um, my brother and I were twins. And we did everything from tap dance to play the accordion to twirling the baton, if you can believe it. My mom had us doing all this crazy stuff in addition to our sports stuff. And the, the, the baton was the shortest event that we did, and it lasted three months. And when we were in a parade in our hometown, in our little town, we had a parade. And the Maryland's majorettes were dance, or uh, twirling their batons coming down the street, my brother and I. Uh, we're starting uh, the route. As we did so, a couple of our friends saw us and started giving us all kinds of crap. And as soon as that happened, my brother and I ran down an alley and did not complete the parade. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the last thing my mom ever got us to do uh, as far as the silliness that we did with tap dancing and playing the accordion and all that kind of junk. So at any rate, uh, the stage was not where it was meant to be for me, but <laughs> performing behind a microphone, I guess, is where it was. Um, on that note, uh, I, <laughs> I do have one more question, um, and it's <laughs> it, it, I, I don't know where to go. Um, it, it's a it's a technology question for you, and um, you are one of the guys that still uses a stick mic when you broadcast. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm curious. Uh, why you like it and and what it's like uh, working with it? I, I've tried it a few times on my own, and I 
I can't keep myself in front of the mic because I like to move and I, I, I move my head too much. Um, what is it about doing it in that way that still works for you and that you really love? Well, here's why I've done it all these years. Um, I don't like headsets, number one. I don't like stuff on my ears. I don't know why it bugs me. I literally had a surgery in 1982 for my left elbow that because I used to keep my left hand over my left ear during a broadcast so I could hear myself, that's how I listened to myself through ball games and, and how I was able to hear myself in a really loud scenario. And I had to have a surgery done on my left elbow because the muscle or had gotten into a nerve or a nerve had gotten into a muscle. Somehow I pinched it. And um, a neurosurgeon said, are you a truck driver? And I said, no, why? And he says, well, this is the kind of injury we see on truck drivers. He says they always sit there with their elbow on the window, and the window's down, and they're bumping along. And he says, this is what happens to truck drivers. I said, well, Mine is caused for another reason. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I, I, I always had that hand up there over my ear. And so I, I, as the years have gone on, obviously, things have changed, but I've never given up the 635 microphone, and there's a reason. The reason is because every time I've heard broadcast done with headset microphones that knock out a lot of the crowd noise, I never hear as much crowd noise as I think there should be. And I think crowd noise is a huge part of the excitement of a game, especially in big games like Indiana, Kentucky, and things like that. Yeah. And I've, and, and our people, our engineers that we've had in the past never knew how to work a crowd mic, never knew how, how much crowd noise should, there should be, that kind of thing. Well, all my other guys like headsets. I use the 635 for two reasons. Number one, it's comfortable for me, and number two, it brings in more crowd noise. It never drowns us out, or rarely has it ever drowned us out. I'm not saying it never has, but you could always basically hear what we were saying, but it always had enough crowd noise that it sounded like, man, this is really an exciting ball game, and that's one of the reasons I've used it for all these years. Okay, a lot. I got one more for you because you, you mentioned it, and I feel I would be remiss if I did not ask, um, but you mentioned Kentucky and Indiana. Um, and I'm curious as to, A, what that moment was like for you when that happened in Assembly Hall. Um, and we've had Dan Schulman on the podcast, and I, I remember we, we talked about Dick Vitale's uh, pleas on the air where they, they, he thought they were going to get run over by the fans. Um, if you remember what it was like uh, in the immediate aftermath of that moment and what it was like calling that moment, and then uh, just for you, for Indiana basketball and its history, what moment sticks out or what moments stick out as, uh, as the ones that, that still stay with you after 44 years? Well, that one will certainly stay with me because it signaled the turnaround after three incredibly difficult years, three years that most Indiana fans thought they'd never see at IU, no matter who the coach was. But because of the circumstances uh, that occurred with Kelvin Sampson and then the uh, incurring three years of which Indiana won six, 10, and 12 games in that three-year period of time. I mean, that, it was just such a hard, hard scenario to deal with. And then that season, you knew things could change, and, they, and you thought that they were going to with Cody and Victor and, and, and the guys that were holdovers from the year before, Jordan Halls and Christian Watford and guys like that, or actually a couple of years before that who had kind of gone through the difficult times and, and knew what it was all about. 
So that team looked to be a team that might be able to make the turnaround or the biggest turnaround in a long time. And that game signaled absolutely that, that this team is for real, number one, and Indiana's back, number two. Those two scenarios were such important facets of that game. And, of course, the, the crowd reaction to that game showed you exactly what I was talking about. It was the most amazing finish to a ball game uh, because of the circumstances that I think I've ever been a part of. Uh, I've been a part of a lot of games, game winners and all those kinds of things, the key smart shot that didn't happen. It actually happened with about six seconds to go, and there was a timeout before the game ended. But, but there have been a lot of big, big shots and a lot of big, big plays over the years that have taken place at Indiana. But to my mind, nothing with what was on the line there and how important that game was to the history of Indiana basketball in the sense of turning things around from that three-year patch that was so difficult to deal with. That, that to me, was one of the great games of all time in the sense of Indiana's winning it. And then, uh, obviously, the notoriety of the call itself because it was, it was a stunning uh, victory and, then at the, and the shot falling uh, I think everybody knew that it, it was it was a surprise that it did because we'd gone through so many hard times there, but so that that's that's why it will always live as one of the great moments uh, of my career, um, and I think I think for the fan base I think they felt exactly the same way. Those people that are fifty, sixty, seventy years old and had gone through such great success with Bob Knight and all that kind of thing, and then the struggles that went on from the time that night was fired up until that point. And, you know, in truth uh, that are still ongoing to some degree, because folks, you know, despite, despite the fact that Tom Crean, I thought did a remarkable job in in his three years at Indiana of turning it, finally turning it around that year four. And, but the inconsistency factor that, that has taken place, and even though we've had some terrific success, couple of Big Ten championships and three six Sweet 16s and, uh, you know, some games in there that were just phenomenal games as well. But, but that game still, for the most part, is probably one of the biggest games in the history of IU basketball. That's Don Fisher, the longtime voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, here our guest on episode number 55 of Play by Play Cast. And we learned a lot of things in there. But the one thing I did not expect to learn about Don Fisher is that he tap danced, played the accordion, and uh, baton twirling. Baton twirling we got there at the end. Uh, All those things were part of Don Fisher's childhood growing up. Now, if I'm being honest, I was a theater nerd, and I played trumpet and all those things, uh, so I guess throw me in the same boat. But uh, I love where these conversations dovetail sometimes, uh, and the the things that we find out about uh, people's careers or their lives in general. Um, so, uh, loved picking Don's brain and, uh, and happy we could finally get him here on the podcast, uh, really as we barrel toward college sports season, we're, we're a couple of weeks out from college football media days. They're coming fast around the corner. Uh, I am heading on vacation over the next two weeks. I'm going to Europe for 10, 12 days, a little family vacation getaway, going to Italy and Vienna. However, that does not mean the podcast ceases. Uh, the will, podcast will be released on schedule over the next couple of weeks because I found out, as I should have probably looked for earlier, I can time release these. So uh, the podcast will continue over the next few weeks. I've always literally just 
put them out at some ungodly hour of Thursday night or Friday morning for the first 55 episodes. Uh, I I can schedule their releases now. I actually figured out how to do that. So podcast will roll on while I roll to Europe over the next couple of weeks. So uh, do listen. Good guests upcoming. Uh, I'm really excited about next week. Dave Wills, who's one of my favorite Major League Baseball broadcasters of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Dave Wills will be with us next week for episode 56 of Play by Playcast. Until then, Marshmallow's playing, so we are out. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. See you.